Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again, and hopefully this is our last time uh, via stream, at least for many of us. I know that uh, some won't be able to join us next week when we come back together, but hopefully uh, many of you will, and uh, I'm pretty excited about that. I'm sure that you are as well. I hope you are anyway. Uh, I certainly am. So uh, I want to begin this morning first by uh, just mentioning some things for us to pray for. One is uh, y'all are aware of the riots that are uh, happening around our nation, and uh, there's certainly uh, much to be said about all of that, but uh, we want to pray for, first, uh, those of us uh, who are a part of our body, uh, who are a part of, uh, uh, or who are involved with that. So we have uh, Elias, as y'all know, who is a uh, NYPD officer, and then we have uh, David Acosta as well, who is an officer in New Haven, uh, but, excuse me, <clears throat> uh, may have to come in, I thought he was going to sneeze, uh, may have to be used in some of that because of uh, his line, uh, his work in, uh, with uh, the police force. So let's pray for them. And then also let's just pray for our nation together and to pray for all of the law enforcement officers uh, around. And not only them, but innocent people in these neighborhoods and other places who are caught up in uh, this violence, uh, this really this senseless uh, violence. So let's uh, open up God's word together, and, uh, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you for the privilege of prayer. Thank you for grace. We, each of us, stand condemned in our own sin, and yet for those of us who have trusted in you, whose eyes you have opened, uh, we have the knowledge of the forgiveness of our sin, the reality of the forgiveness of sin. We have a savior. We have a savior who is not merely the one in whom we have redemption, but the one who is the Lord of heaven and earth, the one through whom all things were made and to whom and for whom all things were made, who rules over everything uh, and is upholding everything by the word of your power. And I do pray uh, particularly for Elias and David and uh, others, uh, believers particularly, who are going into this situation, that you would give them a deep sense of the reality of those truths, that you are sovereign, you are Lord, you are ruling even right now in what is chaotic to human eyes, uh, and in fact is chaos, uh, is yet not outside of your control and your sovereign purposes. And they fit within that. Somehow, and I pray that they would have a deep confidence of it and they would do their job well, they would have courage, they would have wisdom. And Father, I pray and that you, we pray as well that you would keep them safe, that you would keep them from harm. And Father, we pray for all of those um, who are in law enforcement particularly, who are addressing the violence, that you would protect them, that you would give them wisdom, uh, that you would help them to be effective in what they're called to do, but yet in a way that they themselves are not injured. And so, Lord, we, we pray for this, and we pray for the many innocent people, uh, innocent in the terms of uh, not having done anything to uh, justify the violence done against them, uh, who are just caught up in the mob mentality and that, that wanton violence. Uh, Lord, I do pray that you would protect the many that are in that situation, and, and even that you would... Uh, bring good out of this. We don't always know what exactly that will look like, but we do have the confidence um, that you are accomplishing something. Uh, 
we know that in the lives of your children, that something always has a good purpose. And so, Father, this is what we pray for. And we do ask uh, this morning, uh, as well for our leaders, those making decisions, that you would give them, Lord, again, we pray for wisdom, that they would make right decisions and good decisions, even when those are hard decisions, uh, that you would be guiding them in them all. And Father, now we ask that you would open our eyes uh, to the truth of your word, and particularly this uh, reality of trials and suffering uh, in this world. And even though what we'll see this morning is just a, a small taste of all that your word has to say on this, please encourage our hearts, shape and mold us to the image of Christ, to live faithfully with you in the midst of um, a world still under the effects of the curse. And to these things we pray, our Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Okay, well, this morning we were originally, the plan was to begin our look at uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And we are going to begin that, and I'm eager to do that. However, uh, as I was preparing to do that all the way up till the end of the week, really, uh, it just it kept uh, being impressed upon me that that's really something I want to do when we come together. I don't want to begin that. Uh, through this format, and so we are going to wait on that, uh, but we will begin soon within the next, uh, in, either next week or the week after, uh, we'll begin our look at the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm excited to get there. I've been doing a lot of reading and uh, preparing and just thinking through and reading of Ecclesiastes and thinking through it, so I'm eager to get there as well, and uh, we will shortly, but this morning, I want to take uh, a few moments and to look at the issue of trials, to look at the issue of trials. Uh, so the title of the message is Trials, a Biblical Perspective, and, and so that's what we'll attempt to do uh, this morning. It is said that in life, uh, what is absolutely certain, it's said in the phrase anyway, the only thing that's absolutely certain is death and taxes, and we could add to that, and trials and difficulties and, and suffering in some measure, particularly for God's people uh, in this world. And so it's inevitable that we experience trials. They come in a variety of ways. They come at the variety of levels of intensity. Uh, but it's inevitable that we have troubles in this life. And we have, it's inevitable that we have things that confront us and confront and test our joy and our faith and those kind of things. There's uh, in life all kinds of difficulties, disappointments, and uh, discouragements and those things that come again as a result of living in a fallen world and and indeed possessing that fallenness, the, the, the vestiges of fallenness still within ourselves. So this is not an exhaustive treatment, as I mentioned, of the idea of trials, but I hope it's enough uh, to help us to think biblically and to be encouraged. Now, uh, before we begin, let me note that we are going to be jumping around to a variety of passages. Some, some I'm just going to mention. Some we'll spend a little bit more time on, uh, but nothing, none of them in, in great detail. So don't feel like you have to, to, to keep up with all of that. Um, I'll mention them. Maybe you could write down the reference if you want to look at them later. Uh, but let me begin by simply ans uh, answering the question, what is the meaning of trial? And just what is the, the term that's translated uh, trial? Some of you are familiar with this, but it is, of course, a, uh, in, at least in the New Testament, uh, a Greek term. 
the, there's a noun called parasmas, and then one uh, verb is called parazo. And uh, it can be translated in a variety of different ways. Uh, as a matter of fact, in your Bibles, it's translated sometimes as trial, sometimes as test, and sometimes as temptation. All of those are coming from uh, the same word. Let me give you just a few examples. You'll be familiar with uh, some of these. And again, I'm, I'm going to go through them rather quickly. Uh, the first is in James chapter 1. Uh, verses 2 and 12, uh, we have the noun form of the verb that is translated as uh, trials. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. When you encounter various trials. Um, they are those things that are designed by God to produce uh, perseverance and patience in the life of his children. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 12 of James 1, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. And yet you can go down just a little bit past that. Actually, in the very next verse in James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, and you have a verb for, for, uh, form of that word, and it's here translation, translated uh, temptation. Temptation. And so you have in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So uh, there to show that that same term, but here in a context of one who is being uh, drawn to evil, to do evil, uh, there it's translated then as tempted, as tempted. Uh, something similar in Matthew chapter 4, 1, it says Jesus was led into the, spirit, the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so there's two things going on there. In one sense, Jesus is being tested by God to prove his righteousness. And yet from the intent of Satan, he is being tempted in the wilderness to, uh, according to Satan's intent anyway, to destroy his righteousness. Uh, in Luke chapter 22, 28, Jesus thanks his disciples, using this, uh, the term parasmos, uh, for standing with him through his trials, as it's commonly uh, translated. They're speaking of the different kind of difficulties and suffering and discouragements and all of those things that he faced during his ministry. And yet, if you go a little bit later in that uh, chapter, down to verse 40 of Luke chapter 22, the same term is translated as temptation. When Jesus says uh, to his disciples when they were uh, asleep in the garden and he was off praying to the Father and came back and he said, uh, pray and that you may not enter into temptation. That is that you may not enter into the weakness of of the flesh, and in this case, even anticipating what they were going to face uh, at his trial, at his betrayal, and his arrest, and his trial. So, same term translated in two different ways. And again, in Luke eight thirteen, it's translated in this way as temptation, and it speaks of those who believe for a while, but in a time of temptation. Uh, fall away and the, the temptation even uh, of suffering or the temptation of the lures of the world and so forth are too great and overpower whatever empty and shallow faith that they had and eventually shows it to be uh, false. And then sometimes it's again translated as testing is when the Pharisees repeatedly in the Gospels are coming to Jesus. It says to test him, not to test him to prove his righteousness is when God tests uh, him, but rather to show him to be a charlatan, to be false, 
And of course, we know in reality, it was the tables were turned and what they intended to do against Jesus. Uh, and sinfully, Jesus in his perfect righteousness exposed uh, them to actually be the ones who were at fault. And so there's many other examples of this. Uh, I would note that God does also test us, and the term is used for that. Uh, for example, when Jesus tested Philip in John chapter 6, verse 6, uh, he, there was a multitude of crowds. Uh, there was a, a large crowd there, five to 15,000, maybe, maybe more, including children. And Jesus said he had to feed them. And, and he told Philip to, to basically to feed the crowds, to provide for the crowds. And, but the John notes that he said this uh, to test him, for he himself, Jesus, knew what he was going to do. But he wanted to test Philip's faith. He wanted to test and see where he is. And that's the word uh, parosmos there. Uh, interestingly, and I just have to note this, Hebrews 3.9 uses that term and says that we can test God in this sense. Uh, we can test his patience as Israel did in the wilderness for 40 years though they saw God's work, and yet they never responded with that obedient faith that they should have. So what does all that mean? It means this. It leads us to at least a general definition that says uh, that we could, that is this, that the basic idea of trial, in the sense we often use it, and that we're going to use it this morning, and that we just looked at, is this. A trial is any difficult situation challenge, struggle, disappointment, discouragement, suffering that the Lord brings into your life. Maybe a shorter way to say it is this. A, a trial is anything that comes into our life that in some sense we feel threatened, threatened by, where we feel that our safety is threatened, our joy is threatened. Our desires are threatened. Our plans are threatened. Our hopes are threatened. Anything that comes into our life that seems to be a threat to us, um, that is a trial. It could fall under that large, broad category of being a trial. Now, whether it's a trial or a test or a temptation depends on two factors, as we've already seen. It depends on, one, the intention of the one from whom it comes, and it also depends on the internal response of the one to whom it comes. Now, let's look a little bit more closely at the idea of how we are to think about and trials in our life. Uh, first, I would say, ask, how do you discern the reason for a trial in your life? Or, or what are the reasons that God brings trials into our life? Well, in reality, we can't know all of the specific reasons, of course. God is, is often doing things and, and has a, a reason for what he brings into our life that's beyond what we can fully, fully see. And, and many times there's a combination of reasons into our life. It could be a variety of things. We could look to the statement by Eliphaz and Job. Uh, you're familiar with it to, to kind of launch this idea. He, Eliphaz told Job, you remember Job, Eliphaz was one of the friends of Job that was coming to comfort him uh, in his discouragements and his suffering. And Eliphaz says this in Job 5.7. He says, man was born for trouble as the sparks fly upwards. Man was born for trouble as the sparks fly upwards. Now, it could be that Eliphaz is saying, 
uh, we live in a sinful world and there is uh, the, the reality of the curse all around us. And so man in a fallen world inevitably will come against trials, will come against difficulties, will come against trouble. Uh, but that's not likely what he means specifically here. Almost certainly that's not uh, his emphasis. Uh, the context would, would make clear that he means that because man is a sinner and therefore man sins, and because there are consequences for sin, man can expect to have trouble in this world. And, and again, that fits into the larger picture of his accusation against Job and saying that you're suffering. Why? Because of your own sin. In some way, your sin is the cause of your suffering. And certainly, uh, there is a reality to the fact that we are sinners and we do sin and our sin does have consequences and sometimes our suffering is because of that. Things we'll look at later. But what this statement by Eliphaz does not capture was is, is the reality that was hidden from both Job and his friends. And that is that it wasn't because of Job's sin that he was suffering. It was, in fact, because of Job's righteousness and this deeper thing that God was doing uh, in Job's life. The events of Job's life and the evils that fell on him were not simply the mere product of evil or the fallen condition of the world, but they were a part of God's purpose in his life to accomplish something for God's glory and for the good of Job. So though human sin was involved, uh, that was not the ultimate uh, or even the immediate reason for his trial. So to merely say that man is born for trouble, uh, man is a sinner, and therefore all of our trials are somehow attached to sin is not accurate. Well, then what are reasons for trials? What are reasons for trials? Well, of course, as I mentioned already, it is true that some of it is a consequence for sin, and some of it is a consequence for righteousness, and sometimes it's just a general work of God in our lives. And so let's consider those. Sometimes it is a consequence for sin. Sometimes the, the difficulties we experience are a direct result of some area of disobedience in our life. Uh, Galatians 6, 7 says this, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And so difficulties can come in our life because there is a natural sowing and reaping consequence built into God's moral universe, wherein righteousness and trust in him will bring about good results and sin will bring about bad results. Uh, we can see different examples of this. Uh, as a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 7 through 10, we are reminded by the writer of Hebrews that it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And he goes out in that section there to say that if we are children of God, then he disciplines us. Now, discipline is sometimes just a, a, a specific discipline against sin. And sometimes it's just the shaping kind of work of God in our life uh, to create uh, in us obedience and faith strengthen us he specifically says in hebrews chapter 12 that this discipline of god is that we might share in his holiness that we might share in his holiness 
Uh, we can see an example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 30 through 32. We often look at that passage in the context of the Lord's table. But if you'll remember, when he tells them to examine themselves as the body of Christ and as individuals in that body, he says that some of them are weak, some of them are sick, and a number of them sleep. Why? Because they did not judge themselves righteously. In other words, that was God's discipline. That was God's specific uh, act uh, in their life because of their sin. They had the trial of weakness, the trial of sickness, and in some, the reality of death uh, because of their sin. And so sometimes uh, our trials are a direct result of unrighteousness in our hearts. However, uh, this isn't always clear, and that can be uh, a bit muddy uh, at many times because we always have sin in our heart. We always can look at something in our heart and say, well, God's disciplining me for that because we're sinners and we're fallen. and uh, We don't have to look very hard or very long or very deep often to find uh, something unrighteous in us, whether it be an attitude or whatever. And in fact, uh, so that's, that is a, a reason. Sometimes it's clear to us, but not always. Another reason for trials, though, is that it, they are a consequence not of our unrighteousness, but of our righteousness. But of our righteousness. And again, I'll just mention some of these quickly in Matthew chapter 10. Uh, if we are faithful to the gospel call, sometimes that means that it will bring division and difficulty within our families. There will be a, a break in relationships. There will be misunderstanding. There will be a, a loss of the, the formal kind of harmony that we used to know when we got together with them. And he says, but you have to love me more than you love family. And so sometimes that trial and the difficulty and that, that testing of our, of our faith through the loss of family relationships uh, comes not because of our unrighteousness, but as a consequence of our righteousness. Uh, in 1 Peter 4, 4, he says, because you do not run to them with this, in the same excess, uh, that you're going to be maligned by pre people who were formerly your friends. And so there's a trial of the loss of friendship uh, and, and the many consequences that come out of that. It could be that it relates to employment, uh, living situations and, and other things. There is a trial that some you may enter into, not as again as a result of unrighteousness, but as righteousness. Uh, Paul himself was in prison often and endured that trial, uh, not because of sin, as some accused and the false teachers accused him of, uh, but in fact, because of his obedience to Christ. And indeed, we get the prison epistles in the New Testament written while he was under those conditions, uh, demonstrating again that he was there for his righteousness, not his unrighteousness. And so one reason is because we experience trials is because of our sin. Another reason is we experience trials because of our obedience. And then there's other reasons we experience trials, just as God's general humbling providences in our life. And so that brings us, kind of moves us into uh, a third, uh, a second thing to consider. How are we to discern then uh, God's purposes in trials? Uh, and there is overlap here. I understand that, but. Uh, there's enough distinction that it's its own point. Uh, and then so here and then, how do we understand God's purposes in trials? Well, let me note first that there are general purposes. There are general purposes that God has uh, in our trials. Again, why we, we can't 
know the specifics uh, most often. We, there are some things we can say, whatever God is doing specifically, God is always including these things, these two things that I'll mention as a part of the trial. And one of them is to humble us. And one of them is to reveal our hearts. And that has a couple of aspects that I'll mention. First of all, let me note this, that God is always, as a general purpose, as something generally that he's doing in our life through trials, is he is humbling us. He's humbling us. At the heart of our sin is the desire for independence. And, and that's not, uh, and that can cover a large swath of our sinfulness. It's the independence to just act according to my own self-will, to go my own way, to seek my own desires, whatever whatever that may be, uh, or the kind of proudful independence that says, I can do this on my own. I don't really need God. I'm kind of operating out of the flesh. I'm operating out of my own skills, my own experience, my own talents, my own abilities, and so forth. And so God brings trials into our life as a, in a, a generally. They all have the purpose uh, of accomplishing humility or producing humility uh, in our lives. Let me give you just one example of this. And this is in Deuteronomy chapter eight. This is what always comes to my mind. Of course, as I look at some of these examples, you may have others that go through your mind. Uh, this one is one that I think of. Uh, in Deuteronomy, of course, this is uh, Moses. Moses' sermons uh, essentially to the children of Israel, the second generation, uh, largely, who after well, the second generation after the generation who had been brought out from Israel. So this is at the end of their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. This is just before they are to enter the land, the promised land, the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua after Moses dies. And as and so Moses is preparing them to go into the land. He's preparing them to be faithful. He's, he's reminding them of the covenant. He's reminding them of who they are. He's reminding them of, uh, God's promises and preparing them to lay hold of them if they will but listen as they enter into this new land. And so he says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, I won't read the whole thing, but uh, he begins with this. All the commandments that I'm commanding you today, uh, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Verse two, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would he keep his commandments or not. He then goes on to say he humbled you and let you be hungry. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Even in that humbling, he reminds them, your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your hearts that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. And we, again, can see the themes of the New Testament here, the way that God works with his children. Uh, therefore, he says, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him because he's bringing you into a good land. But then he says a little bit later in the chapter, he says, but be careful. He says, because 
you're going to go into a land of abundance. And he says, and when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God uh, for the good land which he has given you. But beware, this is verse 11, that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. He says, basically, you're going to go in, you're going to have all these good things that you didn't have to work for. God just gave them to you. And there is going to be in your heart then, because you didn't have to work for them, a kind of complacency. And with that, a forgetfulness of your dependence upon God. And in that forgetfulness, there is going to be a tendency to forget God and to turn to other things. And he says, in verse 14, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he goes on and repeats some of those themes. The point here is this, is that God knows that ultimately they are going to fail in the future, but he is preparing this generation and through them, using them as an example for every succeeding generation, generation to say that the humbling that you experience there, the, the, the need to depend on God every day, the, the, the having to wait to realize the fullness of the promises, God was doing something there. He was humbling you. He was humbling your heart. He was teaching you to obey him. He was teaching you to trust him. And he was teaching you lessons that hopefully, especially now that they are written down and scripturated in the word, would be lessons you could look back on and remember and be faithful to as you go into this land of abundance, as you go into this land of plenty. So God was, was generally working in their life just to humble them. And we all need that, and he works that way in our life because we have the constant tendency, even as the redeemed, toward self-sufficiency or living out of our flesh or according to our own desires, especially when we live in a land of such abundance and such ease uh, compared to many of our brethren suffering around the world. And so God needs to constantly confront the attitude of pride in our hearts. He constantly needs to confront the attitude of pride. Maybe we trust too much in our own righteousness. We trust too much in our own abilities. Uh, we are too prone to go our own way and act not out of a fear of God, but out of a desire to conform to our own desires. And so God brings things into our life to humble us, to again teach us of the remaining sin that is in our heart and to uh, teach us to depend on him, to remember that we're not as strong as we think we are. And oftentimes he does this by having us enter into times of want, going without, uh, living leanly as it, as it were, uh, being supplied with what we need but denied many things that we want and that we desire. And he does that to teach us, again, to humble us and to de depend, depend on him. Uh, to have that attitude that we are to be praying for regularly, as Jesus taught uh, the disciples and through them us, that give us this day our daily bread. And later what he would say to the crowds, uh, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these other things will be added unto you. And so this humbling work is to teach us to depend on him, to live for things eternal, to live uh, consistent with the kingdom. Uh, 
and not to rely on our own strength. So that's generally something God is doing. The second thing that God is generally doing is revealing our hearts. He's testing us. Every trial is in some way as well, not only a humbling reality of God's providence, but also a testing reality. And, and there's two parts to this, I would mention. One, it's to test us, ready, uh, to show us to ourselves, <laughs> to show us to ourselves, to help us realize who we are and exactly where we are uh, in this walk of faith. Difficult circumstances reveal the hidden qualities and the hidden realities of our hearts. If you want to know what is in your heart, uh, you want to know where you are in terms of spiritual maturity and spiritual reality, here's a test. Observe how you respond to trials. Observe how you respond to, to trials. I've mentioned this before. It's something that I heard a long time ago. I, I find it very helpful. Uh, and it is that the, the illustration, the idea of a sponge, a sponge. So if you take a, a sponge, let's just for our purposes say like a, a dark colored sponge and it's, it's full, but you don't know what's in it. You know, it's wet. I see that it's absorbed something, but I don't know what it's absorbed until you squeeze it. And as you squeeze it, and whatever is in that sponge comes out, you learn what was really there all along. Trials are like that. Trials are like the pressure that squeezes the sponge of our heart. As they come into our life, whatever comes out is what is in, was in there already. So we can't say that this person made me do it or this circumstance made me do it. It's like, no, that provided the pressure to be sure. But what was it brought out was already there. It just needed the right circumstances to show it to yourself. And, and that's how trials work. Sometimes, you know, I can think or you can think that, uh, you know, I'm a great Christian until my plans fall through or until somebody crosses me uh, or disappoints me, treats me unjustly, pulls out in front of me, <laughs> drives too slow on the freeway or takes too long standing in line because they're, uh, they were unprepared or whatever. Uh, those circumstances are, those are smaller examples, of course, but they're the kind of things in life that tend to show us that how easily we can be irritated and angry, how impatient we can be. And all of a sudden that, that easy, nice, righteous Christian uh, demeanor that we had when everything was going swimmingly and wonderful uh, falls to the ground and crushes. And we realize, ah, there was a lot more sin in my heart than I realized. Why? Because it had not yet been tested. I had not yet been put into the circumstances that would show me who I really am. And so for a believer, when we are in those circumstances, whatever rises to the top, whatever flows out of our heart, uh, is a means of God to show us what was really there all along. Why? Well, this kind of fits with the first one, to humble us and to show us where we need to grow in sanctification and to show us where we need to repent and where we need to deal with the issues of our heart. Uh, one uh, writer a long time ago wrote this, and he's actually referring to a verse in First Peter, but it fits here. Let me read. He says, a man is not only, known, un, is not only unknown to others, but to himself that have never met with such difficulties as require faith and Christian fortitude 
and patience to surmount them. In other words, you don't really know where you are in your patience and in your fortitude and in your maturity until you have situations that call you to exercise those things. Um, how shall a man know whether his meekness and calmness of spirit be real or not while he meets with no provocation, nothing that contradicts or crosses him? Whereas standing water, which is clear at top while it is untouched, yet if it had mud at the bottom, stir it a little and it rises presently. So we're, we're not very patient or, or it's not some great testimony of our patience when we're nice to people who are nice to us and when everything's kind of going our way. It's when, again, those, our plans crash around us. Then that shows, are we really patient? Are we really trusting God? And so God brings those things into our life to show you and say, no, this is who you really are. To show me, to say, Joey, uh, this is who you really are. And put in your own name there. This is who you really are. Of course, he does that as a loving father to help us to grow and to help us to put to death uh, the flesh that so easily rises up again in us. I do want to make a footnote here before moving on to the second one is that reality is what points us to the perfection of Christ, actually, because Christ experiences experienced trials and testing to an intensity that we all can't even imagine and to never know. And it was his whole life in one sense was a testing and a trial to prove his obedience, to prove it and to perfect it. And I've mentioned this many times. I'll mention it one once more in John 14, 30 is one of the most tremendous statements about the sinlessness of Christ. And it says this, he's saying this to his disciples. And remember, John 14 fits within this, this, uh, this conversation in the upper room, this, this whole time, this period before um, the, the night he was going to be betrayed. He says this, uh, the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. And so even when, when Christ would be given over to the full designs of the evil one under the sovereign hand of God, the Father. Uh, all of that testing and all of that trial that he was going to experience, betrayal, falsely accused, ultimately crucified, uh, would only prove the perfection of his righteousness. Nothing that he experienced exposed anything but his perfect holiness and his perfect obedience and he was that for us for us and that's why we stand on the merits of christ we stand justified in the righteousness of christ in his merits in his perfection not our own not our own but let me go to a second one it is uh to prove our faith it's to show us where we are in that to ourselves and, and where we are in the walk of faith our maturity but it's also to prove our faith it also is to prove our faith uh, Job, of course, is a good example there. I mentioned him before. He'll, I'm going to mention him at least one, one more time. Uh, Job is a good example there. And if you, you remember the story that, that, God, that uh, God was in a conversation with Satan, and he says, have you considered my servant Job, you know, a righteous man? And Satan made these accusations against Job, essentially saying he only serves you because uh, you bless him. God says, no, he serves me because... He truly loves me, essentially. Uh, he, his faith is real. And so God says, do what you want. And so he gave parameters there, but he says, do what you want. And so Satan 
brought the loss of his family, brought the loss of his material uh, possessions, and then later brought the loss of his health and the comforts of uh, the comforts of health, and even the he the loss of any good counsel from his friends. And in all of that, Job trusted God. It proved his faith. That was the end result. Realized it was a faith itself that needed to be perfected, but it proved his faith. That was the whole. We've noted this in the past. That is uh, precisely what Peter says in First Peter chapter one verse six. He says uh, in verse six, in this, and remember he's writing to people who are under persecution. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, important phrase, you have been distressed by various trials, by various trials, by various temptations, by various sufferings, by various difficulties, by a whole host of kind of things that come into your life uh, because of who you are as a Christian living in a fallen world. And then he says the reason for that in verse 7. Why? Why do we experience these various trials? Well, he tells them. He says that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why do you experience those various trials? Because God is proving your faith. And he's perfecting your faith. And in doing so, he's ultimately producing more glory for himself and a glory that you will share in as redeemed when he returns. And so it is perfecting their faith. Now, there's more that could be said on that, but I want to go to this next, uh, the next part. So that's general purposes for God's trial. One is it has a general purpose of humbling us. And two, it has the general purpose of testing us. One, to show us to ourselves or to prove uh, our faith to ourselves uh, there and to the watching world. But let me add to that. Uh, and again, this isn't exhaustive, but I think this is fairly comprehensive. Uh, let me give you six specific purposes of God in trials. Six specific purposes of God in trials. That isn't to say that any one of these uh, or, or that all of these God is doing in our life, but it is to say these are the, the things that Scripture tells us God is doing in our life through trials. And so this may be very well what he's doing in your life right now, one of these specific purposes and or some combination of them. The first is this. this the first is this. One is to prepare us for some kind of future ministry. To, to prepare us for some kind of future ministry. And I don't mean vocational ministry, like to, to go into the church and, you know, whatever, to, to have that be the way that you uh, are supported in this world. Uh, but ministry as a Christian, some kind of ministry, a way that we serve the body of Christ, some way that we are useful to God's purposes in this world. And, and sometimes trials are meant just to prepare us for that. Uh, Peter would be... Uh, a good example here. Peter, as you remember, was uh, the head of the apostles, and Jesus uh, had put, put him out, called him the rock, and made him basically the first among equals, you could say. They were all disciples, all future apostles, but Peter stood out. He was to be the leader among them, but Peter had an issue. Peter was very self confident. He was very proud. He was very 
confident in his own ability, his own courage, and his own strength. And, and essentially, the Lord is like, you know, Peter, I really want to use you, but you're, and you are a diamond in the rough, I'll admit, but there's a lot of rough that we need to get rid of before that diamond part can come out. There, there, is, uh, there are aspects of your life that need to be shaped and humbled. You're not ready, Peter, yet for what I have you to do. Why? Because your character isn't yet ready. Your faith isn't yet ready. I need to prepare you. And so how does he prepare him? By a really good devotional one morning? Uh, no, no, he prepares him by letting him fail, by letting him taste his own weakness. And so after in Luke chapter 22, after a discussion that the disciples were having among themselves, uh, it was not the only time they had this discussion, but they were discussing uh, who was the greatest among them, who was going to be the most honored, who was the most noble, who was worthy of the most dignity, dignity among them. And in that conversation, Jesus addresses them, but he says as a part of it in chapter Luke, as it's in, in Luke chapter 22, uh, he says this, he says in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Now he singles out Simon, although this is really addressed to all of the disciples. You can't always see some of these things, but that's a plural you there. He's, he's saying all of you, but he's, but he's singling out Simon as well. Saying, but Simon, in a way to say that all of you are going to experience this, but Simon, you're going to taste this uh, in a particularly uh, significant way. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, we would think that a wise thing to go, oh, my Lord, I do see that that's possible I could fail. Help me not to fail. Help me not to fail you, but that's not where Peter was at that moment. And so what does he say? We're familiar with it. He says, Lord, in verse 33, with you, I am ready to go to prison and to death. And the Lord said, I say to you, Peter, Peter, a rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times. Three times you will have denied that you even know me. And of course, Peter thought that was the most ludicrous thing in the world. And yet we don't have to go very far because later in that same chapter, Peter does just exactly what the Lord said that he would do. After being betrayed, after the disciples abandoning him, after Jesus being led off by both Roman authorities and Jewish leaders, after seeing and observing the trial that was going on, he is questioned three times about his relationship with Jesus. Three times he denies him. And then in Luke 22, uh, chapter verse 60 says, Peter said at the, the last of the third time, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Verse 61, and Luke is the only one who records this part, that as Jesus was enduring these trials that Peter was aware of, it says in verse 61 that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Their eyes met right after Peter's third denial. And he remembered that the Lord said that he would do that. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. He failed. He failed. And the Lord knew that. And the Lord specifically put him in that situation so that Peter could feel his own weakness. And basically, Peter, you have too much self-confidence. 
You have too much self-confidence. You need to be confident, but you need to be confident in the strength that I supply you with, not in your own. If you stand in your own, you will fail. If you stand in me, you will be strong. And so why did he do that? Well, he was preparing him for future ministry. When he was restored, he did strengthen his brothers. He did strengthen his brothers. And so John records that for us is when Jesus restored him and three times asked Peter if he loved him, corresponding to the three times he denied him. Each time he said, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Basically, each time it was a call to say, care for my sheep, Peter, fulfill this ministry that I've called you to. So Peter experienced a great trial in his life. That great trial came through a taste of his own weakness, the sin that resided in him, great failure before the Lord. But the purpose of that was to prepare him for the ministry that God had called him to. It was to prepare him for the ministry that God had called him to. Uh, We won't look through all of the example, but Joseph would be another illustration of that. He was given promises early on. His brothers are going to bow down to him. Genesis 35 through 50. His father is going to bow down to him. And being uh, pretty immature and not really yet ready to experience the full reality of those promises, God humbled him in a significant way. He was betrayed by his brothers, left in a pit as they were deciding what to do with him. Uh, He was sold into slavery. He was taken to a foreign country. He was lied against by uh, the wife of his master so that he was thrown unjustly into prison. While he was in prison, he was forgotten. And yet the end of all of that was to prepare Joseph and to shape him to fulfill a ministry in this world that God had called him to. So we have that wonderful statement at the end of Genesis 50, what you meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about this present result and to spare many lives. But God was preparing him. He, he attained eventually a position of great exaltation and essentially everything leading up to that was to, to shape Joseph to be able to have that position with the proper humility and character would enable him to fulfill it well and righteously. And so he shaped him. Why? Through humbling circumstances. And he brought him low. There is another example of this uh, coming from a different angle. Again, one you're familiar with, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And uh, we'll just mention this quickly. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said that he was, in, as a consequence of his obedience to the gospel, he experienced these great, great trials, and it, it brought him to the end of himself. He says, I even despaired of life. I even despaired of life. It was so great. He said in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 1, he says, We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. He says, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but God who raises the dead. But he said earlier in that, that one of the reasons that God brought about the suffering in his life was so that as he learned, even in those deep and difficult circumstances, as he learned to trust God and to be faithful, even when he experienced such inner trials, 
that he was also going to experience, commensurate with that, a comfort and a ministry of the Holy Spirit within him. And that experience of the comforting ministry and strengthening ministry of the Holy Spirit within him that enabled him to complete his service, his ministry, uh, he came to know a comfort that he would later be able to comfort others with. And so he says in verse four, if you go back up in the chapter, speaking of God, the God of all comfort, he says, who comforts us in our affliction so that there's a purpose statement. We will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. There's a kind of unique ability that someone who has experienced a, a certain trial in life, a unique ability from the lessons learned when it's responded to faithfully that they can then share a kind of compassion, a kind of empathy, a kind of uh, tasting of these mercies uh, in a way that can be used to strengthen others who need it. Um, I would just make a footnote there. That doesn't mean we can't receive comfort. We can only receive comfort from somebody who's experienced exactly what we've experienced. That's not true. God's truth is our comfort and comes to us in many ways. But it is to say, it is also true that there is a kind of uniqueness, a kind of particular way that somebody who has walked through that trial can be understanding and uh, can share with the lessons that they've learned as they trusted God uh, with others who might need that same comfort. That's first. I'm going to go through these others uh, quickly, and I might even just have to mention some. Uh, one is this, is that trials produce in us perseverance of faith, character, hope, and a greater knowledge, actually, of God's love. Uh, in Romans chapter 5, Paul says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace through God. Oh, excuse me, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in the hope or in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And the reality is this, that standing in the full glory of justification, being made righteous in Christ or declared righteous, we're being made righteous uh, through the Holy Spirit and ultimately at the end, but we were declared righteous in justification and standing in the full glory of that and the full wonder of our sins being atoned for and the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled on our behalf by Christ that we also exalt in the suffering and the difficulties that come from that. And he says here, we exalt in the hope of the glory of God, and we also exalt in our tribulations. Now, why can we exalt? Well, he gives a reason, and this is a logic that follows here. is because when we suffer for the sake of Christ, and we respond in faith, then our response of faith produces in us a perseverance, perseverance in, uh, within us. And as we persevere, responding in faith, it shapes in us a character, a character of godliness, uh, a character of holiness. And as that character is shaped in us, it produces in us a greater and greater sense of our hope in Christ. 
And as we have a greater and greater sense of our hope and the fullness of what we have in Christ, it is through that that the Holy Spirit works to flood us with a sense of the love of God for us in Christ. And that's how it works. That's how it works. We know and experience the love of God in Christ and as we let our character be shaped by trials that come from our walk with the Lord in this fallen world. As we seek to respond by faith, and though, though that is specifically what Paul is saying there is, is referring to those, those sufferings that come as a, as a specific result of our righteousness, the, the broader principle is this, is that whenever whatever difficulties are in our life, we're responding to out of the reality of our faith in Christ to trust him, then our character is being shaped. And as our character is shaped, our hope is being increased. And as our hope is increased, the reality of the love of God for us in Christ is poured out in us by that new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit inside of his children. And we come to experience it. And in, in the extreme sense of that, that's how the martyrs throughout the history and those who are our brethren now and suffer throughout the world, what do we pray for them? That they would know this, respond in faith and know the fullness of the love of God and the love of God that can be experienced in such a way that it makes the sufferings they're going through pale. It gives them the strength to endure. It helps Tyndale to burn at the stake and say, open the king of England's eyes. It helps Perpetua, Perpetua, though she's being torn apart, uh, to have the strength to guide the sword of the gladiator to her own heart because he himself was too nervous to kill her. And those kind of heroic stories in the history of the church. But even now, our brethren who are suffering, and, and we read of them, of their enduring faith uh, as they've responded obediently and trustingly in God, to God in the face of trials. But in a much lesser way, it's us as well that in that we can know the love of God. And that's a purpose of it. As a matter of fact, one said, commenting on that passage, hope is rewarded with a fresh awareness of the incomprehensible love of God. God's Holy Spirit is at work helping us to grasp the reality of what it means to be encircled by the love of God. Again, we'll have to go quickly here, but a third purpose of trial, a specific purpose, is that God is keeping us from sin. God sometimes brings trials in our life to keep us from sinning, not because we've sinned and not even specifically because of our righteousness, but to actually keep us from falling into sin, from committing a sin. Let me give you just an example here of Psalm 119. You don't need to turn there. I'll read you these verses. In verse 67, the psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. In verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And in verse 75, lastly, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Sometimes he brings trials in our lives to keep us from sin, to humble us before we enter into a temptation uh, that will be to us destructive and damaging and of our testimony. Spurgeon said this, commenting on that verse in Psalm 119, often our trials act as a thorn hedge to keep us in the good pasture, but our prosperity is a gap through which we go astray. If any of us remember a time in which we had no trouble, we also probably recollect that then grace was low and temptation was strong. 
<laughs> I think you don't have to be a Christian very long to realize the truth of that verse, do you? It may be that some believer cries, oh, that it were with me as in the, the summer days before I was afflicted or the other days before I was afflicted. Such a sigh is most unwise, he says, and arises from a carnal love of ease. The spiritual man who prizes growth in grace will bless God that those dangerous days are over and that if the weather be more stormy, it is also more healthy. Your believer goes, I need this. I need this. I need this trial in my life to keep me low because I see otherwise I am tempted to go astray. Another person noted this. Though the children of God are truly the children... Though the children of God are truly the children of wisdom, yet being renewed only in part, they are not altogether free from those follies that call for this rod to beat them out. (laughs) And sometimes have such a bundle of follies as require a bundle of rods to be spent upon it. Many manifold afflictions. We need it. Why? Because we need it, that folly, that sin, foolishness in us to be beat out and to keep us from it. Let me note just, you go... Well, that was the Old Testament saint, but certainly the more you mature, the less you need that kind of thing, right? Because you grow in your humility. Well, that's not true because even the great Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was probably as near and like like Christ than any redeemed sinner ever, he himself needed this, this, this work of God in his life to keep him from sin. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, as he talks about the thorn in the flesh and the trial and the difficulty that he had, that he asked God to take away, but he didn't. Uh, God tells him, or Paul realizes a purpose uh, of that trial. And, he, and it's interesting that he, he says this right after he, he gave the account that he was taken up to see glories that uh, men here don't see. He's taken up to the third heaven. And then he says this. He says in verse seven, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, in other words, I'd seen so much, and but because of all that I've seen and all that I've been given, he says, for this reason, listen, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. How opposite many of these peddlers of experiences that we see in a large movements within the Christian church who want to use these kind of so-called experiences that Paul was silent about for 12 years, but they run to tell it to all of the cameras to exalt themselves. He says, no, I know that that would be the greatest sin that I'm prone to is to exalt myself. Rather, I need something to bring me low, a trial. And I thank God for that trial. Because he says later in that passage, when I am weak, then I am strong. That is a true experience of those miraculous revelations. And the true test of the reality of those is that what it produced in the apostle, which was a desire to be humbled and not to exalt himself, but actually to be brought low so he might be more useful for his ministry. And so it's no different with us. Sometimes God brings us into sufferings of experience and of disappointment to keep us from sin. He might be working in our life for that sole purpose to say, if I didn't do this, I know where you would go. I know where you would be led. 
And I want to keep you from that. And so I'm going to humble you now, which you may not understand all of it, but I know it's for your good. I know it's for your good. Well, I don't have time to go through all of these. I'm just going to mention them and get to the last one. Another reason I'll just mention this is a draw. Trials are simply sometimes just to draw us into a deeper intimacy with Christ. Because as we experience trials, we experience difficulties and suffering, the right response is to lead us back to Christ in prayer and in crying out to him and fellowshipping with him and to his word. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, he's a sympathetic high priest. He never leaves us or forsakes us. And number five, a fifth one is, is so we can gain a greater confidence and hope in God's goodness, wisdom, and character. Uh, we can see that again. And, and of course, Job runs to the front of our minds there. But also in First Peter, you'll remember uh, that those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. It's uh, sometimes just so that we can learn that God is faithful, that he is good and he is wise, and to learn to trust him for those things we cannot fully understand. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all of your ways and he will make your path clear. Lastly, and this is where we're going to end, it is to draw us then to meditate much on Christ, the cross, and heaven. It's to meditate much on the cross and Christ and heaven. He despised the shame and he endured the cross. Why? Because of the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him. And trials have a way of taking us and weaning us off this world and setting our affections on things above to where Christ is and to remind us of our longing to be with him. And this is where I'm going to end with this quote. It says, speaking of the godly man who trusts, or this, this quote speaks of the godly man who trusts God and experiences his sanctifying work through faith. Here's the quote. He says this. He rises above all that is subject to change, casts his anchor within the veil. That in which he rejoices is still a matter of joy, unmovable and unalterable. This is the one who's learned to trust in God through trials. Although this is the same, or rather the psalmist's words, though the earth were moved and the greatest mountain cast in the sea, yet that man will not fear. He says later, Speaking of uh, the Psalms again, he says, when we shall receive that rich and pure and abiding inheritance, that salvation which shall be revealed in the last time, and when time itself shall cease to be, then there shall be no more reckoning of our joys by days and hours, but they shall run parallel with eternity. Then all of our love that is now scattered and parceled out upon the vanities among which we are we are here, shall be united and gathered into one and fixed upon God and the soul filled with the delight of his presence. When we respond in faith and in truth, that is ultimately the end. And ultimately, and here's the encouraging part, the real possibility in our own hearts of having a steadfast joy, a proven character, a deeper sense of the love of God, a protection from sin, a maturing in our faith to know the character of God and a preparation of our lives to be useful to him for some ministry in this world. And ultimately to point us to that world that is to come that we've been saved to, a world of righteousness, of joy, of purity and holiness, 
of redemption in all of its fullness and joy in all of its depths that we might live with God forever as those redeemed and adopted by him. Word sin is no more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words of encouragement. And I do pray that we would learn from them. Lord, we're so prone to grumble and complain in this world. We're so prone to be so easily discouraged and dis- with disappointments, uh, to be so easily lacking in faith, uh, to so easily succumb to our, to our own flesh. And Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us to ourselves. We thank you that as a father, you are operating in our life with both your rod and your staff, with both your comforts and with your discipline. And because of sin so often, and because of that remaining unrighteousness in us, we know that you and your goodness use difficulties and trials and even exposing our own weaknesses to ourselves. Uh, ultimately to the end that we might know you and know grace and know Christ more clearly and fully and robustly. And so help us to remember that and help us to benefit from those difficulties you bring in our life, that Christ might be formed in us, our hope may be strengthened, our worship may be more pure, our obedience more full, and our usefulness to you in this world more complete until we reach our everlasting home and are with you forever. So help us, our Lord, we pray. In your name, Jesus, amen. May the Lord bless you, and I look forward to uh, being with everyone next week.